Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is Fabiana Clore, who is the mastermind behind the Musician's Profit Umbrella, which helps musicians all around the world package their skills into a profitable and scalable online teaching or coaching business. If you're a musician or really any type of creative, you're going to want to tune into this one because Fabiana is dropping knowledge left and right. She's talking about how you can overcome burnout, which is super easy to do in a creative field. Talking about how you can package up your skills. You know a lot more than you think you do. And you can package up those skills into things that people will pay you money for. And anytime someone's like, hey, here's some money, I say thank you. You might, you might poo-poo it. I say thank you. I'll take some money. Sure, that sounds great. And we're talking all about how you can make that happen for you without having to get too crazy, go too wild, get too rambunctious out there. Fabiana also has a couple of great musical performance horror stories that are fantastic. I always love hearing musicians talk about their worst gigs. And I think there's some fantastic things that come out of this one with Fabiana. If you'd like to get in touch with Good People, Cool Things reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast, or better yet, just head on over to goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Sign up for the mailing list. You'll get emails with resources, tips, educational wisdom, whimsy in general. You'll get all kinds of great stuff. It'll be a nice little burst of sunshine into your inbox. And I know some email lists you sign up for and you get like 17 emails before you've even confirmed that you want to be on the email list. That doesn't happen here you're not going to get too many emails. You're just going to get the right amount that gives you the right stuff, the good stuff, just like this conversation with Fabiana. To kick it off, for people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give us your name and elevator pitch and the type of elevator that we're running on? My name is Fabiana Clore, and I am a pianist and a business strategist for musicians. I'm the founder and the CEO of the Musicians Profit Umbrella a global business mentorship program where we help musicians and creatives have six-figure breakthroughs by combining all their skills into an online music business so that they can create financial and artistic prosperity without sacrificing their quality of life. Love it. And we'll we'll get into all of that, but let's jump back, way back to your beginning, because I feel like a lot of musicians, there's like one song or artist like it goes from like, oh, I enjoy listening to music to I want to play music. And I think for me, that artist was the Beach Boys. I remember my family had a Beach Boys CD. I had, you know, this, I was like eight or nine, so I could hit those falsetto notes super easily that Brian Wilson has all the time. And I was like, oh, this kind of like, I love the layering of this. Like, I love the harmonies, all of that. Like, I would like to kind of like explore music. And it took a few years before I finally kind of started getting into something like that. But that was the first one I remember. So do you have an artist or a song or something that kind of was like, okay, I want to learn how to play music? Well, that's a really great question. And if I'm going to be 100% accurate, I would have to say it was my mother's bedtime lullabies. Because oh, nice. I started playing the piano just by hearing her sing a bedtime lullaby to me every night. And that was my first inclination towards learning how to play the piano by ear. I had a little, just a little toy keyboard that my parents bought me. None of them were musicians. I had no musicians in my family. So um, it wasn't like I saw anyone playing music or anything. And my mother just would sing me a beautiful bedtime lullaby. 
And I just started playing it by ear. And she noticed that I was just on my own, you know, like just bringing it back into the piano. Um, and then, and then she started me on lessons when she noticed that I liked to just, you know, repeat the the melodies that she was singing. So I could say my mom was the inspiration, <laughs> my mother's lullabies. It's <laughs> very sweet. I like that. And so you're, I feel like a lot of people that initially learn how to play piano are kind of put into the lessons right away. So you're kind of the opposite of that. You started playing first and then she's like, oh, you actually very much enjoy this. Let's keep it going. Absolutely. And not only let's keep it going, but actually, believe it or not, when I got into it like fully and I was in a conservatory in a music school and like 100% into it, I was like the child that you didn't have to ask go practice. Ooh. I was the child that my mom would actually say, Fabiana, don't you want to go out and play with your friends? You've been <laughs> playing the piano all day. Your pieces are sounding good enough. But you just want to go out and play? And I was just so in love with my instrument. And I could just spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on end. So, yeah, I, I was, this was a self-led passion, I have to say. That is fantastic. I'm very sad. Our, um, our family used to have a piano for a while because my sister kept asking for one. They finally got it. I feel like she maybe took lessons for a little bit, but she never really got super into it. And I think the bulk of it was if we'd come home for the holidays, I, I would like noodle around on it a little bit, but I never took lessons. I could not play piano very well at all. Um, it was, you know, maybe it probably got maybe two hours of use the whole year, like very sparse. And then they finally got rid of it. And it's, it's sad. I was home the last time I visited a couple months ago and it wasn't there. And I was just like, oh. it's like, I mean, I get it. It was taking up a lot of space and, and neither one of my parents were playing it. So it oh, makes yeah. sense. I understand why they did it, but it's still, still a little sad. But anyway, we, we <laughs> move on. So the Musician's Profit Umbrella is, it's such a cool concept. Be, like, so where did this come from? Was this something that you always kind of knew you wanted to do? Or was there like a specific situation that happened that you're like, wait, I, th there's more to this here? Oh, absolutely. No, there's always a story, isn't there? <laughs> and for me, growing up and becoming a musician and going through all my education as a pianist, uh, up until I finished my doctorate degree, it was all about playing the piano. It really was. That was my number one priority, learning how to be the best performer that I could be and focusing on just my musicianship skills and my art. Um, and when I finished my doctorate degree, towards the end of it, I discovered that I actually needed to learn how to make money. It wasn't enough just to learn how to play the instrument. And I started learning about business and taking all these courses in music entrepreneurship. And I really fell in love with it, learning about business and seeing the similarities between business and music. And I went all in into, into becoming a dual faceted, you know, a musician where I could embrace entrepreneurship and I created a business plan. My husband's a pianist as well. We were together doing the degree. So we put together a business plan with the help of a lot of mentors in the university. We created a business plan. We won some business plan competitions. Then we opened a music school right before we finished our degrees, which enabled us to have a livelihood. You see, up until that point, our only idea of what we could do beyond graduating was uh, getting a faculty job at a university like that was the only like what else could you do to make a living you're not just going to live out of concerts mm -hmm. and just spend your life traveling all around and like how you're going to raise a family and like all those concerns plus it's really unlikely it's very difficult to have a career where you just live off of performing so that like the next best thing would be having a university job we didn't really understand what was the other option or that there were other options so the problem with that was that it didn't depend on us right I mean, we could polish our resume all we wanted, but ultimately someone needed to pick us and hire us. So 
as I started learning about business and entrepreneurship and seeing that I had, in fact, been quite entrepreneurial all my life, I just didn't know it. We started deciding, you know, we want to build our own thing. We want to create our own livelihood, build our own school so that we don't need someone to give us and depend on that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, we, when we opened our school, we hired many of our colleagues who were graduating alongside of us who were like, now what do we do? We hired them, you know? Um, so it just was a change in perspective for me to learn about music and, and learn about business and, and understand the similarities. But then, of course, it was a new field for us. So when we opened our music school, there was a lot to learn about running a business. We were not trained in any of that, uh, really. And so there, the first five years of building my school and becoming a business owner and just learning about all of that, it just took over my life. You know, I had my first son, and that was the first moment where we, we learned how to optimize the way we ran our business and, and trying to make it more um, streamlined so that it wouldn't need us to be involved in every single aspect of it as, as it had before we became parents. But still, it was really consuming in my artistry. You know, the thing that motivated me to start playing by ear when I was a little girl, that thing that drew me to pursue all these degrees and become who I was, was pushed to the back burner because I didn't see how to connect my side as a musician with all the things I was doing as an entrepreneur. And so after five years of running my music school, I reached a bit of a plateau professionally where I felt like, okay, I had accomplished a great milestone, but something was missing and I didn't know what it was. And not shortly after, unlike, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this perhaps in your life where you start looking for other things, things start appearing, right? You just need to start looking for them. So I started looking for other opportunities, not knowing what that would look like, but I just started like putting it out there into the world. Like, I want more. I don't know what this is going to be, but I want more. Uh, And the opportunity to come to the University of North Texas uh, just kind of fell on my lap. They were looking for someone who could come in and build a business plan and and build a a program that would help musicians create their businesses and launch their careers and just become savvy and entrepreneurial so they wouldn't end up being like I was, you know, like now what do I do with all this craft, this artistry that I've developed? I don't know how to make a living. So I thought that would be a super exciting new chapter in my career. And I decided to take it on. Of course, my husband, though, thought it was crazy because he's like, we've got a music school in Florida. Like, we can't just leave. Like, what do we do with our school if you take this job in Texas? And uh, and so I, I at first I was like, well, let's not worry about it. I'm just going to cross that bridge if we get there. Who knows? It's so competitive anyway. But then they offered me the job and I did want to say yes. So we had to spend literally eight months reorganizing the, our school so that it could continue running remotely. And so we moved to Texas. Uh, my son was two years old at the time. And I started the business program at the university and I loved interacting with students, faculty, building a program, basically like building a business within a university. It felt like starting all over again, except in a new way. And my students kept asking me when they saw me come into the classroom, they kept asking me like, oh, this is so interesting. And Dr. Claire, do you do you still play? Do you do you still play the piano? And I kept thinking. How can I continue integrating this artistic side of myself, which I miss? which has been put on the back burner somewhat and really put it all together under some sort of an umbrella. And that question kept pondering to me. I didn't see the connection yet, but I kept, I kept saying, yes, I do play. I am not playing as often as I used to, but I do play. And I think it's important to continue playing. And you all should, should look at me and should look at all your teachers and role models and know that it is possible for you to continue being an active musician beyond the time you're here in your university. And that is a, there is a way to do both. But I still had that in my head, like, how, you know, how can I put it together? And within five years of running the program, 
once again, I reached that plateau in my career. And I always joke about the fact that this seems to happen in cycles in my life. I'm always like five years doing something and I always have a two-year-old around. <laughs> so, <laughs> so within five years of running the university program, I started to feel that itch again. Like, I know I can do more. And I had another two-year-old around. So I decided to expand into an online business. I said, you know, what would happen if I were to not just limit the work I do within the university and help all these hundreds of musicians build their businesses, but open myself up to the rest of the world and see if people can use my gifts, my experience, whatever. And so little did I know, I started this in January, 2020. Little did I know that two months after this like baby idea was starting to form about how could I combine all of my skills into some sort of an umbrella and package it in a way where everything that I know could be used, that March 2020 happened and the world shut down and everything went crazy and musicians were really needing this information more than ever before. So it kind of accelerated my my desire to show up and to serve and to do whatever I could to help, right? Yeah. Um, and it just I just it was a great beginning in the middle of a of a of an incredible challenging time for all of us but i felt so like like i have this information this knowledge that i could not keep for myself that people needed to hear so i started the program and after that within a year of running my online business and my university job i came to a point where i felt burned out incredibly burned out and even though I was playing, I was practicing, I was giving concerts, all of that, I was very excited about how I was able to combine everything into this online coaching program that allowed me to use my experience as a, as a business strategist, also as an educator, also as a pianist, because people came to me, not because of one of the things that I knew how to do. They came to me because of everything that I had become, right? Everything that I knew. So they came to me because of this idea of a brand umbrella, right? They came to me because of everything. So that became the cornerstone of the way I helped other musicians is like helping them see all the different sides of what they do and helping them create an online business so that they can serve without geographic limitations, without time constraints and package their skills in a way that builds more leverage so that they can do whatever else they want to do, play concerts. But obviously, as in every venture, I reached a point where I felt also very overwhelmed because I had a full-time job and then I had my, uh, my, my business program that was growing. Um, and so I decided to quit my full-time job, much to the shock of a lot of people in my world, including colleagues, family, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Because you can imagine the Fabiana who was in her doctorate degree, right? Who, who for most of her life only thought that that was the only way to make a living. Like if you would have told me when I was in my doctorate degree that I would one day have a full-time tenure track position at a university and I would quit it, like <laughs> you'd be like, what? Right? So, <laughs> What did you say? You you quit a job like this? Like so many musicians die for having some type of a job with the stability and all the things. How can you just quit? But I knew that there were better ways for musicians to create rapid financial expansion without having to sacrifice so many different areas of their lives and without needing someone to give them. Like I had enjoyed really my time in the university. I learned so much and I wouldn't be here if it weren't for what I learned and who I became within that role. But in reality, from a financial standpoint, you know how it is when you work in an institution. I mean, you can expect maybe a 3% promotion in the best case scenario once every year as a big deal. And you have to file all these reports and explain and justify why they should give you this 3%, right? Well, when I launched my first program, the Musician's Profit Umbrella in June of 2020, I gave myself 120% salary rate. Nice. And I was like, what? <laughs> I can do this? Like musicians can do this? 
wow, you know, I just discovered that it's possible and it's actually easier when you know how to do the right things. And so since then, that has been the, the framework and not only the, the, the idea of combining all of your skills into an umbrella and building a business around that, but moreover, building something that can be run without you needing to be 100% involved. Since I left my music school in Florida and over the past six years now that we've been running it remotely, the first year was crazy. I'll be 100% transparent. The first year was not easy. We had to really learn how to run a school with teachers. I mean, we're a brick and mortar space. We're in a space like we have a lease. We're very, it's like we're all in in this business. It's not, you know, like we could just change the expenses. The expenses are the expenses. And when the pandemic hit, the expenses kept coming. We still mm. had a lease to pay, even though everything was shut down and we were technically deemed a non-essential business, right? So, <laughs> but the, the everything kept going. So it was a challenge, but I knew that musicians needed to know how to build businesses from the very beginning that could scale and that could be run potentially one day, even without them versus being 100% buried by your business. Like I felt for the first five years, I knew what that felt like. And I knew that now I'm not even there and it's profitable and it's running without me. So those two elements of being able to combine all your skills in an umbrella and learning how to build a self-led business, creating leverage in your business so it doesn't need you to be involved 100% in every single aspect. Those are the two main aspects of, of what the whole idea and philosophy of the Musician's Profit Umbrella is all about. So for musicians, because because I think the the idea of like packaging up all your skills is a a super interesting one, but I feel like for a lot of people, they might not know everything they have. And I'm there's times where people have reached out to me about something like I'll I'll I do writing, and so a friend asked if I could ghostwrite a nonfiction book for her, and I said absolutely not. That sounds like something I don't want to do at all. But then I was like, am I viewed as enough of an expert that? I could fully write a book for someone else. Then I was kind of like, could I, could I do that? But I, I thought it was interesting of like, I've known this person for so long and she's like, had this thought of me that she's like, you could write this, this book for me. And I think that's something that a lot of people encounter of like, you know, someone asks them a question and it's, it's like, oh, I'm viewed as an expert like that. So how do you take maybe a lot of these like ethereal things and put them into a package that, people will will want to use and buy? I love that question. And in fact, that's one of the quickest ways for us to discover what our superpowers are. Because here's the thing, when we discover this, when we create a skill set, when we are facing challenges and have to learn how to overcome them, and all of a sudden we've got this new expertise, very quickly it becomes second nature to us. We just take it for granted. Like I'm sure for you, writing is comes very naturally, you know? You don't have to think about it too much, or it's just like, it's already very much in It depends on the topic, but yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. So what happens is when those, when, when we become masterful in any particular skill, we also start taking it for granted. We don't realize that it is actually our superpowers and those can be monetized. And so the way we can detect what our superpowers are is precisely by the response of our environment by the way people show up and ask us to support them, by the questions we get asked, as you said it, people will immediately, like, even if you don't want to have a brand, everybody has a brand because a brand positioning is how people perceive you or how people think about you. What are the, the, the ways that people believe you can help them, right? So everybody has some sort of a brand in their, in their environment. And then of course you can mold it and improve it and change it and et cetera. But 
everyone right now is associated with something. People know them because of something. So that is always a great starting point is to say, have any, has anyone reached out to me recently or in the past few years, you know, asking for anything, right? That's usually a great way to start because again, for you, it must be very easy to say, yeah, I could, I could, I could do this. No problem. But until someone asks for it, you don't realize it's actually a need. It's and someone needs it and wants it because in a way you are really good at it. And so you kind of feel like other people can take it too. And they're just good at it too. So I think that's the first part of the process is there's a combination of you first gaining clarity around what do you want to do and what, what fulfills you and how do you want your life to look like, but then quickly going into listening to your environment and thinking about conversations that you may have had with people. I mean, this is how I started my business too. People kept coming to me over the years. They, they associated me with this role in the university and they knew I was helping musicians build businesses, but I, I would have countless conversations with colleagues and friends and people who would always just reach out to me and ask questions about developing their careers, et cetera. And I would just be, oh, yeah, yeah, it just comes, it comes very easily to me. You know, that's my area of expertise. So I think that's a great way if you don't know how you could help is just think about any conversations that you've had recently. Have people asked you for anything, anything at all? It's a starting point. I like that. And then the burnout, I think, is also a very, a very uh, topical point. I mean, especially during the pandemic, we're all more mentally stressed. We've got, you know, we're probably balancing a lot more. At home, there, uh, there's been times where people are like, oh, I have to leave this call real quick because, you know, my baby just like missed the toilet and I got to <laughs> I got to go clean up real quick. And we're, we're just like, we totally get it. Like that's, you know, three years ago, if you had to admit that you, you know, cower for in fear for forever. And now it's just like, no, we get it. Like we've also experienced things like that. And so I think all of those together can make it even easier to get burned out if you're even if you're doing something that you enjoy just having to continue to do that. And you talked about how you experienced that with your business, but now you can kind of step back a little bit, which I think is always difficult for entrepreneurs to, to like let go of certain things. So are there, there's certain parts of your business where you're like, that was really easy for me to kind of make it almost like a, a passive sort of, um, I don't know if clockwork is the right word, but like, you know, the, the gears are turning without you having to be fully involved or like, how did you find what was doable with, with that, as opposed to things that you still need to be pretty hands-on with? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I'm, I'm going to be like 100% honest. It's a learning journey. It's not something we can decide very quickly because here's what happens. In the beginning, and I felt this in my school as well, we do all the things because we have to. We do all the things. And we develop this... Um, affinity towards the different things we're doing and sense of wanting to control the outcome because it depends directly on us. And so the first step, if you want to grow a business, if you want to create freedom in your life through your business, the first step is willing, being willing to release that control in a calculated way, in a structured way. But most entrepreneurs, most musicians are not willing to let go of that control because they have that sense of perfectionism that no one can do it quite like they can. And there may be right to a certain point, but here's the thing. Our, sometimes our unwillingness to let go of the control and to want to just let other people take that off our plate, we have resistance to that, not just because we, wanna, we don't want to let go of the control, 
but because we don't want to have to train someone else on how we do things because we do everything just from our head and just intuitively, right? We don't need to create systems or processes or anything when we're just by ourselves. But when you hire someone, when you now need to delegate and build systems and create teams, it is a completely new learning curve where you now need to be thinking in processes and everything needs to be documented. And you now need to be able to explain this to someone else, right? It's like in music. Sometimes you have great performers who are amazing at what they do when they play. But when you ask them to explain what they do, they don't want to explain. They just want to play. They don't want to know anything about teaching or they may not even like teaching, right? Because they just want to play. Or when they teach, they don't really explain how they do the things. They just kind of like push the student to the side and be like, just do it this way. And they just, they just want to demonstrate. And they're just like, just, just follow me. The same thing happens in music uh, business. As musicians, we many times I've seen musicians who are just do, and they're just playing, right? They're playing their business. And then when someone comes in, they just kind of want to like play it. Just do it like this. And the, and the employee cannot succeed with that type of drive-by delegation. It's called drive-by delegation. So the success of growing and building a business that can give you that freedom and, and kind of get itself into autopilot, so to speak, depends on the willingness of the leader to take on an active role as, as a CEO and really embrace that persona of how can I now think and act, not just directly into doing all of the things for my business, but being very strategic in how I document all the things that I'm doing and then patient enough to, te- to train someone else and not only to train someone else, but to follow up with that other person and to coach that person. And then when I see that person perhaps not meet my expectations, which always happens, especially at the beginning, you know, you can just do it yourself and you're probably going to get much better results. So that temptation is always there. Like, Oh, this is so much work to just have to train someone and let you know go through this process. I just rather do it myself. So a lot of times when we don't see the results quickly, we just retreat and we just like, never mind, I'll just do it. And you go back to doing the one to being the one doing. So there's this duality where there's a lot of, I think it's a hundred percent on the leaders in making that decision. Like, I know that I could probably do this myself better, but I also know that I'm I'm gonna just be burying myself in my business and I have to learn. How to delegate. So many of my clients, when we help them find their first employees, that is the conversation. It's like now they're happy they have an employee, but they're not happy that they have to train the employee. <laughs> and they're telling me this is so much work, you know, and at the beginning it is. It's like double effort at the beginning, but then you are able to reap the results when you have created the right systems, when you've been patient enough to coach your employee, to supervise and to create the right systems for that employee to succeed. This is a... a- it's, I guess, sort of a tangent, but the um, I was doing a volunteer event with YWCA Greater Austin. I'll give them the shout out. Uh, and it was a STEM event. So it was teaching kids, you know, all these different sort of science and, and electronical types of electri- electrical types of things. And at my station, we were teaching them how to make uh, bristle bots, which I had never heard of, but they're basically toothbrush heads. And uh, you put a, a magnet on one side and a battery that like connects the um, I'm sorry, a, a motor on one side and then a battery that makes the motor go. And then the, the toothbrush head will like kind of move around and you can kind of like put two together and they can sort of like fight and dance and all that. And when you were talking about how it's so much easier to just like take over and do it yourself, that was what popped into my head because some of the, I mean, some of these kids were maybe like six or seven years old, like super young. They didn't have a lot of experience with electrical engineering or anything like that. And so 
you could see they were like, I don't fully get what I'm supposed to be doing. And a couple of them would like hand it to me. And I'd try to be like, no, 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 like you do this. Like this will be, you know, we'll, we'll try and tell you like what to do. And I remember there was one kid who like <laughs> literally just threw his, to, he was just like, nope. He's like, I'm done. And then his mom was like, no, take that back. And then so he did it and we kind of like coached him through it. And then he got it and he was all excited that he mm-hmm. got it. But I, I think it's, it's such a good reminder of like, cause it can be hard to, to want to just step in and be like, you know, you see the person struggling and you're like, oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't want this sort of like awkward tension here. But the reward is so much, so much better in the long run for doing all that. It's absolutely the way to go. uh, But it takes a specific mindset of being okay with the initial learning curve. And it's a learning curve, not just for the person you're trying to train. It's also a learning curve for you as leader. Like, I have learned so much about managing my team while they have learned how to be effective members of my organization, we both learn. And every time I, my team seems to be falling short of my expectations, at the beginning, I was always disappointed. I was always like, well, I'm not really sure. And then I started realizing, what did I fail to do or set in place or explain or, or, or structure for them to get these results. And every single time I would find something that I could have done better, you know, I could have created this, I could have established that. And, and so it's been a very humbling experience because I, you know, I'm, I've been always very transparent with my team and been like, okay, now we're going to come up with this new thing that I just realized we need. And we're going to try again. Let's try again and let's see how it goes. And of course it's always going to be better. Right. So I always try to make, make the, let's say the correction experience, something that is like, let's all figure out how we can move forward in a better way because we all have a a part in the success. There's always something that someone can do to improve. I can explain better. I can establish better criteria. I can follow up better. Like I remember once I was checking on one of my employees' uh, reports that were supposed to be filled out daily and I didn't look into it until like a month later. And those reports had not been filled out, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, these reports haven't been filled out for the last 30 days. And then immediately I'm like, why did I wait 30 days to find out about this? I should have been checking every week, like where are these reports and not just delegate by drive-by and just expect it to be taken care of. I, I need to come back and be like, okay, let's see those reports. Oh, I haven't done them. Oh, okay, well, let's make sure you do them next week. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's just little examples of, of how we can take 100% ownership, I would say maybe not 100%, but at least 85% ownership of the success of our team. And those are the qualities that allow great leaders to build self-led organizations because they are able to, number one, let go of their sense of control, be okay with things not being perfect, not being as perfect as they could have done them, and then be okay with, with embracing human behavior and managing others and being able to have those difficult conversations when things need to have, when there are difficult things that need to be addressed instead of hiding from them, you know? So it takes a lot of emotional intelligence and a willingness to, to want to grow as a human being in order to create a self-led organization. So it's not about automations. It's not about tech wizardy. It's not about any of that. It's about human emotions and understanding those. I like that, especially as someone that I, I wouldn't say technologically illiterate, but there's definitely a lot of technical things where I'm just like, why doesn't this work the way I think it should? <laughs> so that's always, always a fun time to explore. So we're going to jump from business 
to performance now. I always love to ask musicians this. What's the worst gig you've ever played? I don't really think I've played in any bad gigs, to be honest. I've been very fortunate to have incredible performance opportunities all throughout the world and all my career. But things have happened in those gigs that have been quite storytelling, like quite worthy of storytelling. Um, and, and some of them have been quite horrific that I've been like, oh, my gosh, like, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, I remember the first time I was playing with a symphony orchestra, I had just moved from Cuba to the United States and I had won a competition in South Carolina. Uh, this was like around 2002, a very long time ago, like almost 20 years ago. Wow. Um, and it was my first time performing as a piano soloist with a symphony orchestra. It was a great milestone. I felt like so fortunate. I couldn't believe my luck. It was just the dream, right? And we had a couple of concerts. Thankfully, we had two, not just one. But I don't remember if it was the first concert or the second concert. You know, we dress up. I got my beautiful dress. I was performing and I had this beautiful pearl necklace with me. And I just felt like a like a star, right? I was so excited. I just like in the zone. Uh, and I was performing with the con with the symphony with the conductor and playing my solo part. And all of a sudden my pearl necklace breaks and drops inside my dress, but not the full necklace. If the full necklace would have dropped inside my dress, I wouldn't have cared. But only half of it dropped inside my 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 dress. The other half started dangling over my dress, right in the middle of my solo. And so it literally looked like this thing, you know, that I was just playing with this thing that kept moving all around, super distracting. And the more I tried to just like wiggle around while I was playing to get it to fall entirely into my dress already to not be this thing that was just like just hanging and moving along with me, the worse it felt and the more distracting it was. Uh, and it was just like an incredible challenge of like, how do you keep going? And I was, you know, performing all memorized music and you know playing the solo. Uh, as a soloist. And so I remember it was just such a challenging experience to be able to keep my head straight because you know how it is to perform. I, it was, a, there's always that adrenaline, that anxiety. You're like on stage you're on the spot, of course. And, and then I just remember every time I moved, like I just kept seeing that necklace and, <laughs> and it was just a challenge. I remember it felt like this is such a horrific experience to be playing in this way. And I was just so grateful that I was able to pull through it and finish it off. But it's always one of those things that is like, this is probably the most challenging way that I've ever had to perform a concert and be on stage and be on the spot with this thing. Oh, no, now I have something worse, actually. <laughs> and this is just as recently as the last three months. Oh, wow. In February. Oh, yeah. Okay, similar thing, except actually it's so interesting that it's kind of like 20 years later. So I just played a concert in Charleston, South Carolina in February. My husband and I performed at the Charleston International Piano Series. It was a great experience. Charleston is a city where we arrived when we came from Cuba. We got married there. I mean, we love Charleston. The audience there is amazing. We went to the College of Charleston. And uh, my husband ordered me this beautiful dress for me to wear in our event, right? With these beautiful, like, little, like, golden glitters all over the dress, like sparkles. Okay. Um, and he was like, oh, I got you this dress. And I was so excited. It was very comfortable, which is, you know, very great material, et cetera. But it was brand new. So when we were at our like run through rehearsal before the concert, I started trying to play and practicing and all the sparkles ended up in the keyboard. So as I was playing, I kept noticing these little dark, little, little things, because even though they were golden sparkles, when they landed on the white keys, they looked like a black spot. 
So there were like these like super minuscule little sparkles that were just like just falling from my dress as I was playing and things. And it's just like, what are all these sparkles coming from? And the more I tried to push them down, the more they kept falling onto the keyboard. So again, you know, you need to think about like as a pianist, you have a visual memory of what the keys need to look like. And if instead of white, you see white with dots all over the place. It's extremely distracting. And so I started to like have these like memory glitches before the event. I was just running through the, the piece like trying to play it through. And I just kept having these memory blackouts because these sparkles would just completely throw me off. And I was like, oh my gosh. And the concert was going to start in like a couple hours or an hour later. And I couldn't play through my pieces because these sparkles were all over the keyboard. So thankfully the organizers were like, we're going to go buy hairspray. We're just going to like spray your dress to glue all those sparkles on your dress so that they don't keep falling off onto the keyboard. So the, the the organizers were so kind. They went and they bought all this hairspray and they came back and they just bathed me on hairspray all over the place. You know, and so my dress was kind of wet, you know, but from like my, my everything was a little bit wet. It felt wet, you know, humid from from the hairspray. Um, and I remember just, you know, walking on stage and being like, oh, my gosh, I hope everything works out. You know, fortunately, it did. But it was really scary because those little sparkles. And then there were pieces that my husband and I played together as, as four hand piano music. And that piece, those pieces, we had like the music in front of us because it's like chamber music. So every time I would turn a page, some sparkles would fall. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, and then I would turn the page and I would wipe the keyboard, you know, my husband's like, stop wiping the keyboard. That's distracting me. So it was just uh, like an adventure really. And then after the concert, I shared with the audience, you know, we spoke with them a little bit. I said, I had a little, snafu with my attire that was selected for this uh, concert because all these sparkles kept falling on the keyboard so distracting thankfully we got some hairspray uh, you know support and my husband was like I know where I'm going to sleep tonight because I was the one that got her those sparkle dresses (laughs) (laughs) so we just turned it into a, a, a funny a funny story but it was really scary it was really scary like I couldn't play through the pieces an hour before the concert because those sparkles kept falling all over the piano keys it was just very very nerve-wracking yeah i'm just imagining it it's it's uh i do like that you gave the audience the look into it afterwards i think that's always fun to hear i you know behind the scenes they never would have known (laughs) i mean it was just like like really i mean and i just wanted to thank the organizers who had to run to a walgreens and just buy all this hairspray and every time i finished a piece i would go backstage and they would just you know all over my dress and then my dress was kind of wet and it was like it was just, yeah, we returned the dress. Needless to say, as soon as I got home, I'm like, honey, I don't want to wear that dress ever again in my life. So, yeah, somehow my 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 worst uh, stories from stage seem to be derived from wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but great stories in, in the aftermath. All right, Fabiano, you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And I feel like you've kind of been dropping these throughout the episode. But if people are just tuning in right now they're like we're gonna skip through the first 40 minutes of this podcast i just want to hear the top three what are your top three tips for musicians to experience prosperity my top three tips i would say the first one is realize that you are more worthy and more valuable than you think it's not about who you like what you play or what you know how to do it's about who you are and musicians oftentimes forget that they are the most valuable part of their business it's their own person their story the challenges they've had to overcome, the knowledge that they've gained from overcoming those challenges, that is the most valuable part that musicians oftentimes just 
never think is, is important or monetizable. They focus only on positioning themselves as like a piano teacher or a pianist or, and people won't come to you just because of what you do. People will come to you because of who you are. So always know and focus on developing yourself because you are the most important part of, of your business. The second thing would be stop trading time for money. We didn't really talk much about that here, but uh, I'm a firm believer that musicians have ways to create prosperity that does not require them to be exchanging time for money, meaning teaching hour-long lessons and having a cap on their income because once they give away their 40 hours a week that they can work, that's all their income they can make. Stop trading time for money. Look for ways to package your skills and create leverage in your business so that what you sell is a result, is a result. And that's what people pay for. Whether or not you spend time with people one hour a week or half an hour a week, or you meet with them in a group setting, or you do some hybrid combination of asynchronous instruction with live instruction, it does not matter. What matters is the result. So if you know what result you provide and for whom, that's all you need to be able to build a business plan. You do not need to be just teaching by the hour or working by the hour. Um, And the third tip would be uh, your business will grow in direct correlation with how you take care of yourself. If you burn yourself out, if you work hard instead of working smart, if you're constantly doing, 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 and not taking time to recharge and 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 question your acts and, and ask yourself and reflect on who you really want to become and what do you want your life to look like, and you're just like always with your head down in the doing, then you're always going to be running around in circles. And you're going to think that you're busy and productive, but you're always going to find yourself in the same place. So start elevating your thinking. Start exploring how you could optimize the way you work and not be the one doing all the things, but create freedom in your life. Win back your time and let go of things because that's the only way to create true freedom. Love it. Love it. Hope everyone is taking diligent notes because uh, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I love it. I'm a big believer of getting your time, taking back your time too. I think that's it's so important and it's easy to forget sometimes as well. Absolutely. So if people Absolutely. want to learn more, if they want to check out the Musician's Profit Umbrella, where can they find you? Yeah. So I actually have uh, like an hour long training that shows musicians how to create their own Musician's Profit Umbrella in the 10 step process. Um, and so I think that would be a great resource if anyone wants to just experiment with it and test it out and see how they could do it themselves. I know we've talked a lot about it today. Uh, I think they would enjoy checking that out. You can see that at Fabiana Clore forward slash gift, FabianaClore.com forward slash gift. That's F-A-B-I-A-N-A-C-L-A-U-R-E.com forward slash gift. So that's a free training that could show any musician or creative how you can start in the process of really packaging your skills into your very own profit umbrella. Love it. And we'll drop the link in the show notes as well so people can check it out. Fabiana, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Joey. The pleasure having, you know, having this time, having this conversation. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. And we got to end with a corny joke, as we always do. And it's even music themed. Why was the composer so busy? He had several scores to settle. <laughs> Get after it today, people. Love it. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you're a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 